All right. Well, want to bring this meeting to order for the City of Iowa City Work Session on December 12, 2023. It's just after 4 p.m. And our first agenda item, well, welcome to your City Hall to everyone in the room. Uh, the first agenda item is a joint meeting with the Planning and Zoning Commission. So I see four of them before us today. So welcome to each of you. Yes. And then um, I know that the... Um, the, the topic that we're talking about is of interest to a lot of people in the room here as well. Um, maybe we'll just start uh, just by once just going around and in introducing all of the commissioners, just giving us your name. Maggie Elliott. Susan Craig. Billy Townsend. And Mike Hench. Great. And from the council, we really appreciate the work that you all do and know, realize that this is an extra um, time that you all are serving the public even now. So thank you for that. Now, you, you're probably fully aware that the council wanted to have a discussion. And um, I didn't know if any of you wanted to maybe start us out just to have. Um, sure. Well, I was in the minority. It was a 4-3 vote. Okay. And so I believe uh, Commissioner Craig was in the majority. So if you want to start off <laughs> <laughs> um you know we had a long discussion about this we had a lot of public input at the meeting about it um the staff recommendation was not to change the height limit i thought their arguments were persuasive i think that if i can get this right rns 12 zone has protections built into it that i feel were put there to protect the integrity of the neighborhoods and that if used if they use the tool they have you're not going to end up with a building that is so out of keeping with the overall look and feel of the neighborhood that it's put into if you look at the um all the single family residential zoning options they're all at 35 feet. And I didn't think it was a compelling argument to say, well, if we put this at 27, it's gonna save the neighborhood, which is the message I felt I was getting from people. I feel that that designation already has tools built into it for that purpose. And we didn't need to make the zoning code more complicated than it is already. And I feel that those are the arguments that the people who the four of us who voted that way, that why put something to fix something that we have another tool to fix and make it more complicated for all the people who have to enforce the zoning code. And I uh, voted for the 27 height limit uh, for two reasons. One, I think it stabilizes the neighborhood that there are um, uh, a few a, well, a few houses within the neighborhood that aren't covered by the conservation or the historic district. So they will have no protection. They have no protection. So that was, uh, I think that the older neighborhoods are, are fragile and um, a, few, a few bigger buildings in the area will really make destabilize the neighborhood. So that was one of the reasons. The other reason was I think the height limitation actually helps our goal of affordable housing, that it uh, removes the incentive for developers, specific, specifically real estate developers for the university folks um, to come into the neighborhood. So I thought it 
helped us with affordable housing. Yeah, and I guess my vote not to change it from 27 to 35 is because that's an older neighborhood. There are a lot of rentals in that neighborhood. Um, homes that could be bought and torn down and turned into huge rentals, um, which would not be affordable. The houses there now are relative, Iowa City's not affordable, period. So let's not fool ourselves with that. But the things there are considerably reasonable. Um, but if we leave, if we give that 35 foot uh, hike to that neighborhood, it, I think it leaves you open to more contractors coming in, buying up the homes and putting in big units. Um, I actually have my notes I wrote the night of the, the meeting on this one. So just a little bit of background about our um, RNS 12 zones. The issue is, uh, the question was to reduce maximum allowable height in our RNS 12 zones from 35 to 27 feet. And the purpose of the RNS 12 zones is to stabilize the single family residential character of those of neighborhoods. And it allows for single family and duplexes within those zones. RNS 12 zones were created in 1993, and the boundaries largely have not changed since 2007. And there's really four primary reasons why I voted against, um, um, why I'm in favor of reducing from 35 to 27 feet. Currently, properties within an historic or conservation overlay zone um, are largely protected um, from uh, due to the regulations of the Iowa City Historic Preservation Handbook on demolition and new construction. The new structures that they're created are limited to one and a half and two stories. And this protects the neighborhood from the 35 foot height in the super majority of the citywide RNS 12 zones. If you look at the numbers, the tables, most of the RNS 12 zones are fall within a historic or conservation overlay zone. So that is a question of consistency with me that the majority of the homes, I mean the minority of the homes will have to be following the same rules as the majority of the homes. Also, I believe homeowners should enjoy some predictability in their fundamental uh, neighborhood integrity and its, its character. And also, if you look on the north side in particular, the lots are much narrower than throughout the rest of the community. <laughs> Another thing that was a really big issue with me is uh, Bob Micklow, Robert Micklow. He's our retired senior planner. And in 2005, during the zoning code rewrite, um, he, uh, that's when the RNS 12, 12 zone um, was re-examined and he said, we chose not to propose a reduction in the maximum height so as not to hinder walkout basements on sloping lots. There's just very few numbers of, of properties, parcels where that would be an issue. So it looks like that was seriously considered reducing the height a long time ago and with, because of those very few exceptions, the 35 foot was maintained. Uh, I think he regrets that recommendation at this time. And also the recently approved South District form-based code restricts houses to two and a half stories. So that largely parallels the 27 feet. So again, it's a question of consistency because of the historic and conservation overlay zones, the South District form-based code zones. They're all 
currently essentially limited to that 27 feet. So it's a consistency issue. And then lastly, the S in RNS 12 is the word stabilize. Its purpose is to stabilize and stabilize the number of owner-occupied affordable homes. Um, in the north side in particular, that neighborhood, the character of that is there's affordable homes um, largely at this time, although the trend is going against that, of having owner-occupied homes within walking distance of downtown. And so we want to stabilize the neighborhood, the character, the fundamental integrity of that neighborhood. So we do have a neighborhood where it all doesn't turn into just development speculation in rental homes. And those are my reasons for uh, voting uh, for the reduction from 35 to 27 feet. Thank you all for your uh, responses. Appreciated that. Just want to remind the council that this is item number 8A uh, at our formal meeting tonight, and we'll be taking a vote at that time. So certainly we can engage in conversation, but um, as always, we will want to wait for the public to come before us before we make our final decision. So just wanted to make mention of um, if people are ready to give a position statement, we know that we're going to be hearing from others uh, mm -hmm. in the community. But this is an opportunity if anyone has any questions for our commissioners, certainly we, we can ask those at this time. This might be me going into the weeds a little bit and creating a pop quiz, but I'm trying to... Um, clarify my own notes um, from the memo it looks like <clears throat> there are 47 north side properties not protected by historic or conservation overlay does that it's sound? a very low number so that's, it's a very it's like low 15%. number percent right okay that either community-wide or north side neighborhood wide I'm not sure where I got that 15 percent but it's a very small number okay thank you Th yeah that's that jives with what I have What I will say is that um, I actually watched your <laughs> video, so a lot of the conversation that you all had, I, I appreciated, you know, kind of the dialogue that you all um, engaged in. I, I really don't have any questions because I, you all made your points very clear as to why you were supporting um, or not supporting um, and it's kind of complicated because, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, supporting 35 feet or supporting 27 feet. Um, our agenda item is a little complicated. But I think at the end of the day, you know, I, I hear um, the arguments um, for and against. And when I, when I hear you say, Mike, about the, you know, the South District um, form-based code, um, of course, predictability is something that I think happens in the South District. Um, and the form-based code is what, you know, we're somewhat been leaning towards throughout the entire community. And predictability for not only the residents, but the um, um, developers, staff, <laughs> council members, and commissioners. Um, is something that we talked about when it came down to form-based code. So there will definitely be a few questions that I'll um, be asking staff later today. Um, but I appreciate um, you all coming and sharing um, this time with us today. Okay. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Good night. Thank you. The next item on the agenda is review of Chauncey and Rise processes to inform future uh, 21 South Lynn plans. And I see Rachel Kilberg before us. Let Welcome. Get settled a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Great. Well, good evening, Mayor and City Council. Uh, Rachel Kilberg Riley, Economic Development Coordinator. Um, I'm going to be leading presentation tonight, uh, but uh, we'll invite Jeff to jump in uh, if he has additional comments um, as we kind of go through this. Um, so, as you all know, uh, we we the city acquired uh, 21 South Lynn Street um, in August with the intent to facilitate private redevelopment uh, at that site. So, really, our goal just in today's work session is to kind of kick off this uh, redevelopment process um, just by reviewing um, past projects that we have had experience facilitating that kind of development. Um, so uh, the Chauncey and Rise buildings are two of those examples of past public-private uh, redevelopments that we've engaged in. So those are two examples that we're going to focus on today. Um, but first, we'll kind of review the history of the 21, kind of the recent history of the 21 Southland site and how we came to acquire it. Um, talk a little bit about what you might expect during that developer selection process, um, and then we'll move into reviewing those past project processes for the Rise and the Chauncey um, before we talk a little bit about um, moving forward and what the process might look like for 21 Southland. Um, so just to kind of orientate you again and remind you of the site that we're talking about, uh, 21 South Lynn is uh, what the now vacant lot at the corner of Washington and Lynn Street, so directly across from the Senior Center on the Lynn Street side um, and then across from kind of Daydream Comics, Chop House, the Englert on that Washington Street side. Uh, this is just a street level view. You can see it kind of backs the uh, Studio 13 uh, entrance in that alley and then uh, adjacent to some of those um, smaller retail businesses on uh, the west side. Um, actually, Redmond is making a cameo <laughs> in this <laughs> Google image screenshot, which is kind of funny. <laughs> um, but uh, funny enough, the, this 21 South Lynn was actually home of the former City Hall building. So that's where City Hall stood, very cool looking buildings uh, until 1962 um, when it was demolished. And then it served as um, drive-through banking, I think a number of institutions, or at least a, a couple perhaps, um, had operated there. But then in more recent years, it really just served as a surface parking lot for the downtown area. Um, so just kind of a quick review of how, again, we came to acquire the site. So in October of 2021, um, uh, U.S. Bank was selling the lot and CA Ventures, which is a national student housing developer, purchased the property. Um, they moved to demolish uh, that existing building and the surface lot in February of 2022 to get it prepped for their development. Um, in communicating with them at this time, uh, it was clear to the city that they didn't intend to request any sort of financial 
incentives from us uh, for their redevelopment project. Um, there was no rezoning. So really um, didn't anticipate a, a heavy level of involvement from the city. Um, by September of 22, they had a, a site plan approved for a mixed use, 13 story building, about 266 student housing units uh, with some ground level uh, retail and commercial space. Um, approved and uh, then that project uh, seemingly ready to move forward just never did um, by the spring we heard that uh, they did not intend to move forward with the project and actually um, we're going to be seeking to sell the uh, both the property and the building pl building plan so at that time um, then this the city sought to acquire acquire that property you all um, city council approved that purchase agreement in July of 2023 and then um, we officially closed on the property in August of 2023 so um, just thinking about uh, the future of the site uh, in the short term um, did want to mention that we do have a couple of um, uh, major reconstruction projects um, happening in the downtown this coming spring. So the Dubuque Street reconstruction project, um, kind of all within this block, and then uh, we'll be beginning those exterior improvements on the senior center uh, around that same time period. Uh, obviously, both have the potential to kind of disrupt some of the downtown uh, traffic flow, parking, uh, and just those businesses. So um, we could anticipate that, that this kind of vacant lot as it stands now might be good staging area for some of those projects just to help mitigate some of those traffic and parking impacts, um, at least in the short term. And then of course, over the long term, um, the job before us is to, to kind of identify what that future development will be and what the future use of that site will be. So that kind of brings me to um, uh, just uh, kind of what we see as maybe that general overview uh, for redevelopment process for 21 South Lynn. Um, we're kick, kind of kicking things off tonight with just, again, reviewing how we've approached private uh, re redevelopment projects in the past on land that we've owned. Um, after this evening discussion, then we anticipate that we'd be able to start to develop a public engagement plan, um, get that approved by you all, uh, execute that plan, compile the feedback, bring it back to you, um, and hopefully have that wrapped up by the summer so that we can really move into that phase of kind of goal setting and identifying what we want in that RFP, again, getting some city council final approval on that RFP uh, with a goal of getting that issued um, by September, October of 2024. Um, and then, of course, after that, we would move into to actually reviewing those RFP responses um, and any additional public input that might be needed at that time. Um, so as we kind of start to get into some of these examples, uh, one thing that I just wanted to maybe put on your radar is just to think a little bit about um, what that balance might be. And you'll see this in the examples that we'll talk about ahead, um, but what that balance is between making sure that we're obtaining sufficient detail as we move through the redevelopment process from um, the, the respondents to the RFP and also um, ensuring that, you know, what we're asking of them at that phase is appropriate for the phase that we're in. So um, it, it's really reasonable to expect, it's what this kind of inverted triangle uh, attempts to show that as that uh, developer, uh, as the field of developer candidates kind of narrows, those proposals will likely become more detailed, more refined as we move through the process. So you'll see in these examples ahead that um, many of these developers probably spent thousands of dollars putting their initial proposals together. Um, so they do have some skin in the game too. And uh, again, it's, it's important that we have the information that we need to make decisions uh, while also recommending 
accepting, you know, what, or recognizing what we're, we're asking of them at that time. So um, maybe just a quick example to kind of demonstrate this. Um, so let's say uh, it's a sustainability um, uh, feature that, that we're talking about. In the initial RFP response, the, the respondent may say, these are some of the lead standards that we would strive to include in our project. Then as you move into that finalist stage, they might um, decide to, or they may uh, then commit to a certain lead certification that they would obtain. And then by the time you reach that development agreement, um, it should be really clearly laid out if, if they intend to obtain that lead certification and even maybe what specific points they would anticipate scoring in that. So just to kind of give you an idea, you'll see more examples ahead. Um, so that brings us to our first example, which is uh, the RISE. Um, so uh, the RFP for this project was included in your information packet entitled as the Court and Lynn Street uh, project because that's the site which now of course holds the RISE student housing and uh, Hyatt Hotel. Um, so as we go through this, I'm just gonna call it the RISE RFP simply because that is um, what, what we now know it as and um, hopefully then everyone knows uh, what we're talking about. So quick review of that timeline. Um, so for the RISE, that RFP was issued in May of 2014 and then responses were due uh, in July of 2014. Um, after those uh, six, after those res responses were received, in which six proposals were received, um, a review committee uh, reviewed those and selected three that they then recommended to city council. Um, and then in October of November of 2014, council approved those three recommended proposals, plus they pulled in one additional proposal from those six that the review committee hadn't recommended. Um, and then all of those four semifinalists were invited to uh, present and do a little Q&A with the city council at a work session in November of 2014. So following those presentations, um, the city council narrowed the, the field down to two finalists, and then at that point, they actually requested a refined proposal from those two finalists. So um, staff kind of provided some feedback to those finalists. They were asked to submit a revised proposal, given a couple months to do that. And then again, the review committee came back in um, to help review those revised proposals and um, develop a preferred proposal recommendation for city council. Um, so that came back to city council in March of 2015. And then at that point, City Council went ahead and approved that pre pre preferred proposal, and they also selected a runner-up at that time. Um, and then after that point, uh, they moved into developing uh, and approving the uh, development agreement, making that land transfer, um, and then the developer was able to secure their building permits, uh, get, get their site plans approved, all the, the typical um, steps that they needed to, to get to the point of beginning construction. So what we're focusing on today is just what I have outlined in that red box, really just that developer selection process. Um, so, as I mentioned, that RFP for the RISE is included in your information packet, um, but here are just a couple uh, of uh, pages that might be of interest as you kind of think about what an RFP uh, might look like. So um, I'll, in I'll go over a lot of these examples over the next several slides, but just kind of wanted to identify a few of these um, in case you wish to refer back to them. So first up, this is an example um, of just some general community goals that uh, the council had identified in that RISE RFP. So as you can see, these are high level. They provide that overarching kind of guiding direction for the applicants. Um, and this would, um, 
these kind of goals would be established during that RFP development phase. So you would kind of identify what objectives you hope to achieve um, and include those general guiding goals as well as kind of more specific um, project goals. So um, this is an example of the uh, project goals that were included in the RISE RFP. Um, and again, these just provide a little bit more detail for those um, RFP respondents to kind of help craft their proposal and hopefully meet one or more, um, well, meet as many of these goals as, as they can. So I won't go through all of these, but just a couple of examples that I'll maybe call out. So that first one there um, just, ident just identifies that the, the proposal be consistent with established master plans, in this case, the Downtown and Riverfront Crossings Master Plan. It's linked in there so that um, the applicants can uh, uh, review that and make sure that what they're putting forward is in line with uh, that broader vision. Um, jumping down to number five, um, here they identify a minimum uh, amount of office space square footage that they'd like to see in the proposal. Um, and then in kind of six to eight, they get into uh, any uh, uh, parameters that they have for residential uses that would be proposed. So um, they identify that they'd like to target permanent residents. They kind of um, identify that desire, desired mix of workforce housing and affordable units um, and just a couple other details in there. Um, so then on page kind of nine to 10 of that RISE RFP, you would find uh, information that was included about the zoning parameters for this site. So uh, again, this is just to help respondents understand upfront what, are, uh, what uses are allowed there and then any important requirements that would be required uh, alongside such uses. So um, here you can see the photo on the left. Uh, there give examples of um, uses that would be allowed uh, with the CB5. It, it provides for a wide variety, which are listed there. Um, and then you can see, you know, just give some, some quick bullet points on uh, that those setback, uh, building height requirements, including the density bonus in this district, um, and then uh, any anticipated parking requirements. So all of this information would be provided by staff based on that zone, uh, current zoning designation. Again, just so uh, the respondents understand kind of upfront uh, what, what would be allowed here. Um, so also as um, they would be developing that RFP, um, uh, council would need to establish kind of a review process um, and this should just be kind of a general guiding framework for how projects um, or proposals would be evaluated. So. Um, Really the goal of this is just so that um, both the council staff as well as the respondents, the community, any other stakeholders um, just have a transparent, consistent process that they can rely on moving forward. So this is an example of the review process that was included in the RISE RFP. You'll see they kind of um, built in a little bit of flexibility for themselves um, while maintaining um, that guiding framework for how the review would work going forward. Also recognizing until you see kind of the quantity and quality of what those proposals are, um, you may not necessarily know exactly how that review will go going forward. Um, and then this RFP had actually also included scoring criteria, um, pretty specific scoring criteria. So I'll show that on the next couple slides. Um, that first one simply gets to the fact that they've submitted everything they need to. Uh, the second one, developer experience and capabilities. Um, 
you can see this criteria kind of gets to helping uh, the, the staff and council understand, you know, what types of projects the developer has executed in the past, um, what's their approach, their philosophy, do they have the ability to pull off the type of redevelopment they're proposing, um, and then as we move into number three, market and economic viability of the project. Um, these criteria kind of should demonstrate that the developer understands the landscape, the goals of the site, they maybe done their due diligence just to ensure that their proposal um, is a good fit and would succeed in our local market, and then just that they have a, a sound financial standing and a realistic financing plan. Um, the next two, uh, uh, long-term fiscal benefits, so this includes things like that initial proposed purchase price, uh, projected tax revenue, other revenue they might generate, uh, jobs created, uh, and then that last one there is um, whether there would be any negative impact on adjacent properties. And then the fifth one is uh, whether the project furthers city goals. So here they kind of harken back to those master plan, the, that river downtown riverfront crossings master plan that had been referenced earlier in the RFP, and I think generally Generally, as you look at these criteria, they, they did a good job of um, maintaining consistency with the other goals, objectives, and site requirements that were um, identified earlier in the RFP. So you kind of see that continuity, and I think it's, it's just a good practice uh, in example. Um, and then that last one's just a little bit of a catch-all, um, but uh, you, can, you can see here they even included the scoring at this stage uh, in, the, in the RFP. Um, and then uh, this is just a summary of the submittal requirements that were requested in the RISE RFP. So um, if you want to see the, the more detailed list, I'd point you to page 12 of that RFP. Um, again, that was included in your information packet. But this list should just give you kind of a good idea of what in general um, is both important to ask for in the RFP and again, reasonable to expect would be included in initial proposal. Um, so again, this would be something that uh, you all would approve during that RFP kind of development stage in the process. Um, so just a couple things, um, you know, obviously a description about uh, that development group, you know, what their past experience is, their financial capacity, um, details about the project, uh, the financing plan, um, budget, um, some conceptual visualizations. We'll get into um, some examples that show you uh, what this actually looks like when they, when they submit their proposal. So that's kind of a, a look at what that RFP uh, or that request for proposals might look like. Um, and then this is uh, how that review process went in the case of the RISE. So um, in, that RFP was issued May 30th of 2014 and then it was due back July 14th of 2014. So that's about a 45 day response period, um, which we think is uh, probably a minimum, a good, a good number. Um, after those proposals were received, in which case, uh, as I mentioned, there were six received, a review committee went ahead, reviewed those, they recommended three semi-finalists to present to city council. City council uh, approved those three, brought in one more, um, and then uh, a month later, those four semi-finalists were invited in, they presented to city council, did a little bit of Q&A, um, and then the city council was able to narrow the field down from those four to two finalists in December of 2014. Again, at that time, they requested refined proposals. Staff uh, provided feedback to those two finalists um, in order to develop that refined proposal, um, given a couple months to do that. And then in February of 2015, um, that review committee
committee came back, reviewed those refined proposals, recommended a preferred proposal, um, which city council approved in March of 2015. So as you kind of look at this review process, you can you can see uh, at which stages, um, you know, council uh, consideration and approvals were, were happening and uh, at which stages staff was kind of working with or facilitating with the developer to help kind of move them to that next phase of consideration. Um, in the next couple of slides, I'm gonna actually get into examples of what an actual response to the RFP looked like. So in this case, I'm just gonna show examples from the RISE um, proposal, which was actually submitted by CA Ventures since that was uh, the successful proposal. Um, and again, in this process, since uh, six applicants submitted their initial proposal and a few were later asked to submit uh, a more refined version, I'm actually gonna show examples of kind of that, that uh, initial verse revised so you can kind of see again how that, that changed over the course of the process. So this is an example. I don't expect you to be able to read all of this or, um, or anything like that, but just to kind of, I'll just call out a few things, just again, give you a general overarching idea. So uh, on the left-hand side is what was uh, uh, some screenshots from their initial proposal, and there you get some kind of narrative descriptions of the project. You get some high-level descriptions of uses that would be intent, uh, included in the project. Um, and then in this case, they uh, plan to uh, have a hotel in, incorporated in the project, and so they had some letters of interest from hotels who might be interested uh, in partnering. Um, and then on the right-hand side, the, the revised proposal, that's where you really start to see those details uh, kind of sharpen up. So um, here they've included specific square footage allocations between the different uses, retail office, uh, residential hotel, um, and then uh, they have the residential units broken out by unit mix, one, two, three bedroom, and um, affordability. And then they have a more refined list of hotels, hotel operators, and other project partners who they expect to engage. So obviously, you know, there's still some changes from that revised proposal to what is included in a final development agreement, but again, this just gives you kind of a general idea of what you can expect as, as you move through the process. Um, here's another example, uh, like I gave earlier on sustainability features. So um, in that initial proposal, in this example, uh, the, the RISE developers had proposed using certain lead practices um, and described how their project would uh, encourage pedestrian mobility. But then by the time they uh, got to that revised proposal, you see a much more detailed list of energy efficiency, sustainability features, and then a stronger commitment uh, to obtain a lead silver uh, rating. And then it's kind of cut off in the photo, but they actually include kind kind of that uh, rating scorecard and where they anticipate the point allocation would be. Um, concept renderings are also kind of where you're more likely to see that detail get refined uh, as you go on. So um, here in that initial proposal, you get a, a generally good idea of what the building form and scale will be, but then as you move into the revised proposal, you get kind of that prettier picture, you get a better idea of what the, the architectural features will be, and in general, just how the development would fit into that surrounding environment. Here's just another example from the aerial. Again, you can kind of see how it shapes up into more of what actually came to fruition uh, with the, the project we have today. And then this is an example um, just from their initial proposal uh, on the rise. Uh, these are just some general site layouts that they had included. They have some conceptual square footages. Um, so to compare and contrast in this middle photo, they show a typical floor plan with unit sizes and it just shows residential and hotel units. Um, but then by that refined proposal, 
which you can see on this slide, then you actually get a floor plan for each floor. So then they, they start to bring in and show how those different commercial office, uh, residential amenity spaces would also be incorporated um, on, the, on those floor plans. And then uh, on the site layout, you start to get a little bit more detail with proposed setbacks. Um, and again, just a more refined concept that obviously is more similar to what we have today. Um, so in the case of the rise, uh, the, the developer was not seeking any city financial assistance, so there was not a gap financing request uh, in this proposal, um, but they were able to include an estimated budget, pro forma, uh, they had included uh, what they expected to generate in terms of tax revenue. Um, you can see uh, in that project summary screenshot, um, they uh, included kind of what their proposed um, uh, uses would be in terms of hotel rooms and units and uh, about a 3,500 uh, square foot for retail. Uh, we'll compare that with the next slide um, where then you start to get a lot more detailed versions. So here they have much more refined square footage numbers. You know, they double the amount that they're allocating to retail. You see that 25,000 come in for office space um, and then they're able to even provide uh, what they anticipate the commercial lease rates and the hotel rates would be as well as on the residential side they have that unit mix and affordability mix um, more fully fleshed out. So you start to get a better picture here that helps their numbers sharpen up. Um, and then one of the big differences here too between that initial and refined proposal was uh, they'd initially uh, proposed uh, proposed a purchase offer of $5 million and then in the refined they bumped that up to $6.5 million. Uh, here's just an, one more example of how that uh, tax projection uh, and analysis may be refined as that proposal itself is refined. So of course, as they understand more better what their uses are going to be. Um, so that those are kind of examples of the proposal responses. So you've seen what the RFP might look like, what the responses might look like, um, kind of we already reviewed what that review process looks like. And then really after that developer is selected, um, you move into that more, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, like traditional redevelopment phase. So again, in this case, they hadn't um, requested any uh, TIF, so um, they were able to move much more quickly from that developer selection process to a development agreement. So you can see uh, at the bottom there, the total time from when that RFP was issued to when they selected a developer was about 10 months. And then from when the RFP was issued to the development agreement was about 14 months. So that's a pretty quick turnaround. Um, and after that development agreement was approved, uh, land transfer was um, completed, uh, building site plans approved. In this case, they sought a, a density bonus in the Riverfront Crossings District um, and then were able to pull, pull their permits and begin construction. Um, but just kind of keeping in mind and providing a little context about, you know, what that timeline is going to look like. It does take a long time. Um, and here you see, even in this case, where they were able to quickly move to a development agreement by the, from when the RFP was issued to when the construction was completed, it was still a five-year process. And um, I, almost all processes will probably have unanticipated delays at one point or another. So uh, just keeping in mind that, that it is a little bit longer of a process. So that's uh, the, the rise, and then we're gonna move into our second example, which is the Chauncey. Um, so in your, again, this is included in your information packet uh, as the College and Gilbert Street redevelopment, just like the rise, I'm just gonna call it the Chauncey RFP, just so we all know what we're talking about. So 
So again, here's just a quick breakdown on that timeline. August uh, of 2012, the RFPs were issued. They were due back about a month later in September, so here you get a little bit shorter of a response period. Um, again, a review committee was involved. Ten proposals were received, and they, of those ten, that review committee recommended five to come and present to city council. Um, those uh, presentations occurred in November of 2012, um, and then kind of around that same time, uh, the city had hired the National Development Council, or NDC, which is uh, a third-party entity to um, do a, a bit of preliminary financial analysis on those semifinalist proposals that were received. Um, based on all of that and the presentations and public input, then council was able to narrow that field down to three finalists, um, and then at that time, they didn't request full um, refined second versions of proposals, but they just asked staff to go back and, and get a little more information on questions or gaps that they saw in those. Um, and then in January of 2013, council evaluated those three finalists and selected a preferred proposal. So after that stage, um, again, in this project, there was uh, city financial incentives involved, so um, we brought NDC back in to help conduct uh, some financial analysis and technical assistance. Um, just negotiations on that de development agreement occurred, um, and then uh, be because they were requesting that TIF, it moved through the uh, City Council Economic Development Committee. Um, by June of 2015, City Council had approved that development agreement, um, and then the building permits were issued and construction began in October of 2017. So just like the rise, um, kind of just that area that circled in red is uh, what we're gonna talk about today, which is the developer uh, selection piece. Again, here are just a few uh, kind of pages of interest from that RFP. We're gonna review a lot of these in the coming slides, um, but just as a reference, if, if you would like to go back and, and look at any of those in the actual uh, RFP document. Um, so just like the rise, uh, in that RFP development uh, stage, the staff and council had identified goals, both uh, general kind of overarching community goals as well as project goals. So this is an example of what they included um, for kind of downtown goals. Um, and again, this is just so that those respondents would understand, um, you know, how it was envisioned that this project would fit in with that larger downtown uh, environment. So just a, an example that I circled here, um, they, the, the council sought to encourage projects which would really draw people downtown. They gave examples like housing, uh, hotels, arts and entertainment venues. And so when you look at these goals and then look at the, the development that we end up with, um, it's nice to see that, that those goals uh, kind of came through. So again, here's an example of the project goals, which are just a little bit more specific to what they'd like to see in those proposals. Um, so a few, again, I'll just call it a few examples. That second bullet point there, um, they specifically, class A office space was identified as a priority, so that's specifically called out. Um, the third bullet point down, they just note that it is a high visibility location, so a, a bit more elevated uh, kind of architectural quality was um, desired there. Uh, and then in those last couple, bullet points as well, you see where they um, outline their desires for residential mix and affordability levels if there are any residential uses proposed in the project. 
Um, so just like the RISE in the Chauncey RFP, they had also identified um, a, a general review process so um, the, the proposal respondents could uh, anticipate how their proposal would be evaluated uh, going forward. Um, you'll remember in the RISE, they included that really specific uh, evaluation criteria, less specific here, um, but still, again, provided that criteria uh, against which proposals would be judged. Um, and again, I think, as much as, as much as you include here, uh, until you receive uh, those proposals and see what the quantity and quality is, um, there's probably needs to be a little bit of flexibility um, uh, in that process. Um, so again, the submittal requirements, uh, this is just a summary. You can find that full detail beginning on page 16 of the Chauncey RFP that was included in your information packet. Um, this is very similar to what was included in that RISE RFP, um, but uh, should give you an idea of, of what's asked of the, the respondents to include, um, and uh, I would anticipate is probably pretty similar to what we might ask for in 21 Southland. Um, so just like the RISE, I've included a couple slides uh, that I will go through a little bit more quickly since you've seen one example. Um, but these are just kind of screenshots of what was included um, in the proposal submitted by the Chauncey developers. Um, I will note, you'll remember back that there was only a 30-day response period for this project. And so as you see some of these screenshots and then look out the window, it's kind of amazing to see just how similar um, the project really was based on this initial 30-day <laughs> proposal. So um, whether that's typical, I, I guess I don't know, um, but just something I thought I'd point out. Um, so here uh, you see they kind of include narrative description of just how that development, um, what the project is um, and how it would kind of integrate into its surroundings. They include a little bit of an architectural description. They provide that high, break, that high level breakdown of uses um, and then some concept renderings to help uh, illustrate what, the, what they envisioned for the project. Uh, just a couple more um, screenshots of some of those uh, uh, renderings that were included, site layouts. So um, again, these, these were included in the initial proposal, really similar to that final design. One key difference that I'll point out, uh, you'll see on the left picture that initial proposal proposed a 20-story building, um, and then uh, the, the final product, I think, is 15-story. So um, was a little bit of a change in that way. Just another example of, uh, uh, on the left is a, a layout that was included in that initial proposal in 2012, and then uh, on the right is um, uh, building plans that were approved in 2016. So for the most part, very similar, some minor differences. Um, I think, you know, just looking at it, you can see that space for fix isn't quite carved out here. Maybe the use of that room just to the north of, of Spare Me is a little bit different between them, but um, for the most part, this is an example in which there wasn't a ton of tweaking and changes um, from that initial proposal. Uh, here's just an example of what you, how you might see maybe uh, kind of those conceptual square footages shown. So they break down, you know, what they anticipate for parking, retail, office, uh, uh, hotel, residential. Here's an example um, of, of their estimated timeline. Looks like uh, about three and a half years they had anticipated. Took a little bit longer, but um, gives you an idea. And then. Um, 
in this project, TIF was requested, so they uh, had requested that, that gap financing amount. Um, I believe uh, in this project they had requested 13, looks like 13.4 million uh, in this initial proposal. Uh, the final development agreement was 12 million, so I'm guessing with those stories being shaved off the top that maybe impacted that total project cost and some of that, um, but um, in general, just that it re is getting refined over time. Um, so we already talked through kind of what that um, review process looked like again for the Chauncey, so I won't review this in depth, um, but just a reminder, you know, they had a 30-day response period, 10 received, review committee recommended five. They had those semifinalists present to council. Um, they did do, hire a third party to do a little bit of analysis on those, um, and then using that information, council narrowed to three finalists and then ultimately uh, selected a preferred proposal. So this just kind of shows you um, at this time uh, that council had really dedicated uh, November, December, early January meetings to just kind of working through this evaluation, um, again, in public work session settings, um, evaluating those finalists uh, and ultimately reaching their decision about a preferred proposal. Uh, similarly, they had incorporated uh, several opportunities for public input throughout the process. So um, they had provide they had made those proposals available online for public review. Uh, they encouraged comment through email, uh, mail, typical correspondence channels, um, and then all of that was routinely forwarded to the city council as it was received. So that um, kind of the the public input gathering was almost ongoing, um, and then. Uh, of course, at that November 2012 work session uh, is when they invited those semifinalists to give those presentations, do a bit of Q&A with the city council. Um, all of that was live streamed. Um, and then they had a special uh, agenda item at a meeting in December of 2012 in which they had scheduled to uh, solicit verbal public input based on uh, those presentations that had occurred the meeting prior. Uh, so as I mentioned in this example, uh, the city had hired the National Development Council to do an independent third-party financial analysis of those five semifinalists. Um, just some benefits of this is that it is an independent third party who, who doesn't have a stake in the project. Um, and also they have that uh, expertise to provide technical assistance on the financial analysis that maybe we don't have in-house. Um, so in this case, uh, that uh, NDC actually advised that at the stage that they had been initially um, engaged. Um, they, they couldn't really provide a super meaningful uh, depth of analysis, but they were able to at least um, provide enough feedback that council could kind of continue to narrow. And then they also were able to provide guidance on, hey, here's the things you might want to be asking of these developers uh, as you continue this evaluation process. Um, so. As we kind of move into thinking about 21 South Lynn, the option to uh, contract with NDC or a similar uh, firm uh, would certainly be a possibility. Again, I think it will just depend on, um, on what's received in, in terms of proposals and just how that evaluation process kind of unfolds. Uh, Can I ask a quick question? Mm -hmm. um, is there some um, rationale for why NDC wasn't contracted for the, um, the rise? I just wonder, is this, is this kind of a standard best practice or? 
Um, we, we would typically, we have typically used the NDC to assist with uh, TIF agreements, uh, not just okay. the Chauncey, but multiple TIF agreements. Um, we didn't necessarily anticipate TIF with RISE. I think we went in thinking okay. it was going to be more of a sale, and the city's goal was to maximize that sale price and that future property tax. Uh, so we didn't feel like we needed NDC, gotcha. especially at that early stage of the, okay. of the RISE. Thanks. Um, so, uh, for the Chauncey, then after that, a uh, preferred proposal was selected. Uh, again, kind of those um, traditional redevelopment steps that you're probably more familiar with uh, began. Um, so, again, we had, we had, as Jeff mentioned, we brought in uh, NDC to assist with, with uh, their financial analysis for the TIF portion. Um, uh, just got into the negotiations with the developer, um, and then ultimately were able to develop that development agreement, get it approved by the city council, uh, and make the land transfers so that they could uh, move into to construction. So in this case, um, the time from when that RFP was issued to when a preferred proposal was selected was about six months. Here you see, you'll remember last time in the rise, very quick turnaround to that development agreement here, uh, a little bit longer, um, uh, partially because uh, they were requesting some finan city financial incentives, um, and then uh, the time from uh, when the RFP was uh, issued to complete construction is eight years. So as I mentioned, always some level of unanticipated delay, but in general it's important to just maintain that uh, uh, context of, of how long these processes uh, can be. Uh, and th this is just kind of another visual of what of what that looks like. So, um, with those examples uh, in front of you, then we thought we'd kind of move into uh, discussing just the 21 South Lynn Street uh, process. So, uh, really, my goal is just to kind of introduce a general process for moving forward um, on the 21 South Lynn uh, developer selection. So a couple of um, objectives that we viewed as important. Uh, first, uh, it's, it's very important that we establish a transparent, predictable process. This is important not just for those who are responding to the RFP, but for staff, for council, for the public, and for any other stakeholders who are involved. Um, we intend to incorporate meaningful uh, stakeholder and public involvement throughout the process. Um, and then, of course, the ultimate goal is to obtain some uh, sort of public-private partnership which incorporates significant public benefits of which would be defined and prioritized uh, by you all. Um, so here is kind of a, an outline or a timeline of, of um, how we would uh, like to move forward with 21 South Lynn. So um, that first phase, uh, which would begin kind of after today's meeting, would um, involve uh, us going back, kind of putting together a public engagement plan. We would bring that back to you for approval, um, and then uh, that to just get the go-ahead to um, go out and execute that. We anticipate we'd probably uh, work closely, you know, with uh, the Iowa City Downtown District, Greater Iowa City, uh, some of those direct stakeholders, um, and then also try to make this a, a, an inclusive public engagement process to kind of hear from some of those diverse cross-sections of the community who maybe haven't been involved uh, in a development process like this before or um, at least been asked to share their ideas. Um, and then uh, we would compile all of those, again, bring them back to, to City Council um, and present those to you. So um, uh, we envision that's, that you all, City Council, would help kind of inform what you'd like to see out of the public engagement process. I'm sure there'll be opportunities for you to be involved in a listening session or something similar. Um, but 
it, it probably would involve a mix of in-person, online um, types of, of engagement. Um, so uh, we anticipate that that could be wrapped up by summer, um, that kind of whole uh, develop the public engagement plan, uh, execute and compile the results. Um, and then uh, in the summer, we could hopefully move into, so June to kind of August range, we could kind of move into setting those goals. Um, so again, this would likely happen uh, in a public work, work session where you uh, develop those goals, you develop a review process, um, and then um, we can start to identify what we'd like that RFP to look like. Um, so um, here is kind of where you might uh, identify any specific public benefits, uh, specific mixes of uses, sustainability features, affordable housing, anything like that that um, would be important for us to include and, and for the developers uh, who are responding to know. Um, and I also anticipate those goals would be based on probably the public input that we heard and then any established master plans like the downtown or your strategic plan um, as well just to, to maintain continuity there. Um, so at this stage, you'd also identify that review process um, and evaluation criteria, again, kind of as a guiding framework for, for how um, uh, proposals would move through that evaluation process. Um, and then based on that direction, uh, staff would go ahead, develop that RFP. We'd get the green light um, uh, on that final before it's issued, but our goal would be that by September, October, we could look to actually issue that RFP. Um, and then uh, we anticipate kind of 45, 60 day response period. And then of course, after all those RFP responses uh, are received, we could um, move into that review process that was uh, previously established. Um, so this is uh, exactly what I just showed you, but just kind of calling out uh, again, um, so you kind of understand like where, where that city council uh, um, uh, demand might be. Um, of course, it kind of ebbs and flows through the process. In some cases, staff might um, do a little more legwork to kind of move things forward, then it comes back to council um, and, and so on. But uh, in that public engagement phase, um, really, I think you'll have an opportunity to, again, let us know what you'd like to see during public engagement. Um, you, would, you would kind of approve that final public engagement plan. Um, be involved, of course, in it and hearing from the public, um, and then we would present any results to you. Um, in that phase two kind of RFP development stage, of course, we would use a work session or uh, a couple work sessions, whatever, to kind of set goals and so that you can provide guidance and, and priorities that you'd like included in that RFP. Um, and then we would, again, want to get the green light from you before a final version of the RFP was issued. Um, and then uh, it kind of be on staff's backs to then actually handle issuing that RFP and accepting the responses before we move into that review phase. Um, so then it kind of showing the exact same thing, but with uh, some of the public input opportunities uh, published. So like some of the past processes, I think there, there obviously is going to need to be multiple points of um, uh, public engagement opportunities. So um, any time, of course, that, that uh, the items on the work session agenda, they would have those public input opportunities through their traditional correspondence or public comment periods. Um, Similar to the Chauncey, we would want to be making those proposals available online uh, with kind of a dedicated feedback channel, um, whether that's an email or, or whatever it is, um, and then uh, making sure we're keeping that updated as those proposals are kind of narrowed and, and refined. So that being said, um, this is kind of what, what we might see as next steps following this presentation today. So. Um, we um, 
if, if this process that we've kind of outlined feels comfortable with you all, we would go ahead, um, go back, prepare that public engagement plan uh, to bring back to you in maybe February or early March, um, and then um, uh, we would have you uh, just approve of that public engagement plan, kind of, again, give us that, that go ahead to, to execute. First of all, thank you. Um, quite quite a presentation, quite a job uh, compiling the materials in the packet, so thank you to staff for that. Um, one of the things that I appreciate but then wonder how well it worked, the scoring system uh, that was used in some of the previous. Um, looks good on paper. Um, I don't remember exactly some of this stuff was before I was really engaged in, in city politics. How did it work? Like, did it, did it meet the goals that we had hoped, or or was, was there some slippage? I would imagine there would be some, but just kind of how, how well it worked. I don't know, Jeff, if you were... Well, it probably depends on who you ask, to be honest. Um, uh, there was, would be some that say it, it worked fine, and there would be some that probably disagreed, depending on which side of the argument they may have been on. Um, I think it's it's very important to be clear to the to the community and the and the, um, the 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 developers that are proposing on what criteria they're going to be looking what, what criteria we're going to be judging them on um, whether you want to put in specific points or not um, I think there's there's debates you know. Uh, either, either you can kind of fall on either side of that. Um, the scoring system in the Chauncey was hotly kind of debated, and that's still a point of contention with with some that recall that process. But uh, um, I think it's most important just to focus on that exact kind of criteria that you're going to be looking at. I wouldn't be so focused on the weighting system itself. Thank you. For the public engagement, since it's going to be the first step that the staff will be preparing for us. Can you just give us like, uh, what kind of questions, or is this a survey? You're gonna ask the public, how are you gonna engage with them? Like what previously has been done? How you reach out to the community? Because from my experience, I see like certain people in this community make the decision, especially when it comes to downtown. You know, I don't think it's like being reached out to all the people in this community. I especially everything is in English at the end of the day. So can you tell me what you think will be before us to discuss it? Because we don't want to just like make you do everything and come to us here and after that we say, oh, you should have done this and this and this. If you can give us some ideas about normally what the kind of public engagement you do, is this a survey, questionnaire, what it is? Sure. Um a concern if Jeff has other thoughts. Um, so we, we ha haven't given a ton of thought to that yet, right? Yeah, because that's the next step in the process. Um, but uh, I would anticipate, like I mentioned, it's probably a number of ways. So we would do uh, maybe a couple in-person kind of listening sessions, and we could be strategic about where those are located and, you know, uh, how we're promoting those. Um, and then, um, of course, there would be some sort of online uh, digital-based uh, form of feedback, so whether that's a survey or whether it's some prompting questions and an email, um, I do think you're right, just um, making sure that we are providing the public some level of background so they're not just going into this like, what, what's going on here? Um, and then maybe providing some uh, 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 guiding questions to help spark their ideas and help them think about what they would like to see uh, at that corner. Yes, yeah, I guess we would like to 
be creative this time. Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, you know, I, I would love to see the whole community participate. And even we don't have to put something online and just wait for the community to come and just like fill out those questionnaires or maybe tell us what they want to see. Do you know that there's some people in this community, even they don't know that they have this power, they can come and tell you what to do there. So I think, you know, just let's talk about this more and try to engage the whole community, even if we can go where they're at to do like information session about it or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks, thanks for the feedback. Scoring is always a hard uh, thing to do. Um, and I appreciated that question that you brought up, Councillor Harmson. One of the, as you were talking and I was looking about, looking at the scoring, um, one thing that I didn't see, and I don't know where it is, um, if it's even possible, but subcontractors will be used on a lot of these projects. Um, and I wonder if there's any type of scoring opportunities for people who use um, like targeted small businesses, which is for minorities, uh, which is a wide scale um, who, who fits in that definition. So I wonder if there's any opportunities within the scoring to kind of take that into account. Um, I know Davis-Bacon is something that we often uh, have to do at, for the city, but if that, and I know that drives up the cost, but um, if those are some of the considerations that we can have in the scoring process, I think it might um, be advantageous. Yeah, yeah uh, sorry. <laughs> Again, we just wanted to kind of show you examples today of like what has been done in the past. Hopefully that provides you a starting point. But then once we get to that phase of deciding what's in the RFP is probably where we'd want to have those detailed conversations if that's something you'd want to include or what um, other criteria you'd want to include in the scoring. Yeah, the, the one thing I would um, just point out at the RFP stage, it's probably not realistic to, to think that the developers are going to have their full construction team assembled. They might not even have a general contractor identified uh, at that stage. So you typically would get into those types of details at a development agreement phase. Um, and unfortunately, you're gonna be swimming uphill with state law on you know the city being able to dictate uh, contractor terms even if we have financial incentives in there and we can we can cover all that down the road but uh, um, I just think at that RFP stage you're going to be hard-pressed to have development proposals that are prepared to go into that level of detail and it was number two that I was looking at the developer experience and capabilities so Rachel I'm this public engagement, um, since, since we've been discussing it since the, after the presentation, there was some indication that we would be talking about programming and vision for the building. That's the aspect of the, this opportunity that I'm really interested in is, you know, what, what's the vision we have as a community for this project? And well, so that we, we frame it in such a way that it is sort of welcoming this idea that this is a community vision uh, and the programming would flow from that vision. Um, and the process would, of engagement would be structured to try to elicit what that vision is. 
Sure. So uh, when we acquired the property, um, I think the the idea or the vision, the kind of high level vision was um, that some sort of mixed use uh, building at this corner would be important. Just knowing, you know, city council's goals, um, some of our partners' goals, like the downtown district, um, uh, you know, a, a residential component, maybe some ground floor, a couple uh, ground level. Um, uh, floors of uh, retail or commercial space. Um, so uh, I think we're open to, again, what all those, there's a wide variety of uses allowed in that um, zoning designation. So um, again, just kind of evaluating what the top priorities are as we move through this, both for the city council, the public, and, and stakeholders. I think that's going to be part of the, the job <clears throat> through this process. The, the council is going to have a number of very difficult decisions, and you should expect that through the public input process, you are going to hear a lot of different ideas. Developing a consensus may not be <clears throat> very easy. You'll hear everything from leave it as is and build a park to, you know, build an entertainment use to a hotel to to uh, all affordable housing. You're going to have you're going to have the gamut there. And, you're gonna to have to make that difficult decision, but that's the that's the the hope in the RFP is that we can get to a point where we feel good about articulating those goals. And I think the example that Rachel shared with the Chauncey was really good. There were some high-level goals in there about um, arts and entertainment uses, about uh, attracting more visitors and and lodging. The council was able to kind of focus in and say these are four or five uses that we think are uh, needed downtown. Either they don't exist or maybe uh, aren't uh, are underserved so to speak I use the example of the hotel you may look at downtown now and think well there's there's plenty of hotels well at the time the Chauncey RFP was issued the Hilton Garden Inn hadn't been built and uh, we didn't have the, the uh, element and the Hyatt and you know there was a lot of that missing so that was a goal at the time I, I don't necessarily predict that will be the, the the same priority for the council this go around so We'll do our best to, to solicit those ideas, make sure we're hitting that cross-section in the community, and, and, and work through the goal setting with you. But uh, to your point, Councillor Thomas, I, I hope we can get to that um, clear vision um, on, on what we hope for this site. I appreciate what you just said, Jeff, about um, knowing that we're going to be hearing so many different points of view and recommendations. And I remember um, I paid the most attention to the Chauncey uh, process at the time and less less so to the rise. But um, can you give us a sense, if you know, of at the different decision points for the council, knowing consensus was hard to get, and I remember some, again, remember a lot of those controversies, but were the decisions along the way typically split votes, unanimous? Like, can you, do you have a sense of sort of where, where those, how, how that fell out? Uh, I, I I couldn't recall each each individual kind of stage, but there was I, I think it's fair to say there was difference of opinions uh, throughout the throughout the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One good thing is we'll have individuals like uh, Meredith Rockmorton that sit in the in the audience to kind of uh, jog some memories on some of these. <laughs> Yeah, there, were, there were, particularly with the Chauncey, there was quite a number of contentious, uh, contentious meetings. Right. At one point, there was a sitting council member who was engaged in active litigation against the city regarding the height and the shadow that would be cast from the Chauncey. So I, I think uh, Jeff is probably uh, <laughs> understating a little bit about the contentiousness that was present at some parts of that discussion. 
That's what we're signing up for. Hopefully not that specifically. Hopefully not, Hopefully not that. I would love but. to have no council members actively <laughs> engaged in litigation <laughs> against the city. It seems like a threshold we can reach. But. I'm, I'm also really, and I haven't really looked into this concept of a model, you know, what in terms of trying to help think about what this building could be to look for models, you know, that somewhere out there there may be some projects, you know, we've seen some that were in Iowa City as references that um, may offer some trigger inspiration with regard to the vision for our projects, you know, that have a mix of uses that really just work magic in terms of uh, creating that sense of place and community. Um, and I know that's very possible on certain types of projects. I'm not as familiar with this mixed, a mixed use development uh, like this. Um, but that's something I would be very interested in is what, there's, there's gotta be examples out there that kind of check all the boxes in terms of equity and uh, energy efficiency and creating the right mix of common spaces, common public spaces and commercial activity and so forth that um, I, I would love to explore that personally. I think there would, it would be a lot of fun thinking about the possibilities that it would offer. I think too with all the uh, comments about you know the, the challenges that face us, um, and maybe this is just because this is, uh, I'm still, this is my last meeting as a member of the freshman class on the council. Um, <laughs> See you in January, Josh. Um, uh, so maybe I'm still ha have that that optimism, but uh, I'm actually really excited about this. I think we've got a lot of challenges. We'll hear a lot of input, but the potential for this project still is something that, like this is this is to me when I see this on the agenda, this is something that really gets me excited because I know we can do a lot of good things with this that were weren't possibilities that we thought were even on on our radar or possible a year ago. So that's, it's kind of a, a cool thing that's developed this year that I think has got such great potential. Um, and I'm personally very excited about that and I appreciate the work that's been done so far to get us to this point. I mean, this is, in my mind, ground zero in the downtown. I mean, it, and it's the <laughs> former city hall site. It has, it's clearly a power site. Um, so it, on, you know, the Chauncey, uh, the rise, we're not at the center of things in the, in the way that this lot is, and it doesn't have the history as, you know, that, that, that Lynn Street there was the civic center of Iowa City. You had the library, the um, city hall, um, what else? There was post a, office. The post office, so, so that, that was the civic corridor right yeah. there. Um, yeah. So there is, you know, that, that resonates still in my view, that mm. that, that particular location um, is a very special location. For all those things that Council Thomas just said, I think I see this as like a really important location and that we, we really have to make sure, as somebody mentioned, the boxes are all checked and that, that we do it right and that we do utilize the public input and, and do the right thing and, and get it right the first time. Um, Actually, I was tipped to this because of all of the conversations that we've, um, the council has brought up um, in terms of public input, not necessarily that it would go the same route as um, 
the master plan for parks and rec and for the pools. However, that kind of outreach and that methodology of sort of finding different focus groups and the kind of that effort, I think, ended up being so successful that that might be a way to sort of do an overlay um, w without necessarily incurring the same expense and the and the length of time that it takes to do all of that. But that could be used to 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 borrow Councillor Thomas's language. That could be a model for how outreach could happen to get input from a much more diverse um, sections of the community. So it's just food for thought. Thanks. That um, prompts a question about staff capacity. I was thinking about how we often have consultants who assist in those aspects of a, a project of scale and importance. Is that something that we're considering here? Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, we would wait until after the goal setting is is done and and kind of understand where where council's going if there's a significant if it appears that there's going to be a significant demand for um, public benefit right the, mm -hmm. the 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 programming programming components of the building that aren't going to pay the bills so to speak then we're probably going to want to get the, uh, the NDC or uh, another firm on to, to help us with some of the financial analyses uh, because it's probably going to require some sort of t tax increment financing if on the other hand the goals um, uh, are, are more focused on private programming and we don't necessarily think that uh, um, city subsidy may be needed, then, then we may not. So I, I, I think, ask that again mm -hmm. uh, in, in June and July, we'll probably have a clearer answer. All right, thank you. Yes, thank you all. So we'll go ahead and, and get to work on a public engagement plan. Uh, you've all provided some helpful feedback and, and bring it back to you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. All right, we're gonna move on to USG presentation of renter's guide. Well, Good evening, council. Good evening. We'll pull up the meeting notes here quick. <clears throat> pull this up. Flash from the past. <laughs> no, it's great to see you all again. Yes. <laughs> Had to dig them out of the grave for this. <laughs> <laughs> the present button. Do you know where the present button is? Am I going crazy? Present button. What? Oh, no. Do I have full screen that? Yeah, oh, we can't even present. What? No, present right here. Look up there. There, yeah. there you go. <laughs> go all the way back there you go awesome well we'll finally get to this um, I know it's usually presented sometimes earlier sometimes later luckily we got it done right in the time for the end of the year um, so this is the 2023 renters guide um, it took Keaton Matthew and I a long while uh, coding is not really my thing and so luckily Keaton and Matthew kind of understood it a lot better so they really helped me with this um, but I mean yeah we'll get right into it let's see there we go, awesome. So a lot of this data that you guys will be seeing tonight, um, this one's a really wordy slide, sorry, but we'll try to keep following along with it. Um, so a lot of the methodology and how we did this was we took 50% of the responses, so everyone who filled out the form more than 50% of the way got their actual data into most of these statistics. Now the first slide is mostly um, 
non-refined. So this is anyone and everyone who just filled out at least one question, really. Um, and so you'll see some stats, uh, hopefully through this, of how many percentages. Uh, inside the actual published renter's guide, not just this presentation, they will have the uh, unrefined data and then the refined data later. So you guys are basically just getting the refined data, which has the most important points in my opinion, because these are the people that actually filled out at least more than a majority of the renter's guide itself. Um, so that's just really important to note. Uh, overall, we had 603 respondents, just in, like just anyone who answered one. Um, but about 71% actually filled out more than half the questions. There were about 38 questions in total. Um, not all of them were required, but more than that. Um, so yeah, Keen, if you would like to take away the first part of the methodology here. Yep. So um, for data to be considered or otherwise omitted, a landlord property management um, company had to have at least five responses to be included in actual visual data, as you'll see in the columns that we're gonna um, have presented later. And then 91.82% um, um, were undergraduates and 8% um, were graduate or professional students. And then a to in total, a quarter of responses identified as first generation, non-traditional, international, veteran, or transfer students, which is really good. And then uh, many of these students are between the ages of 19 and 24. And then disproportionately, responses were from white respondents versus BIPOC um, students. Um, we saw 81.24% um, white students this year. Comparatively to last year, there was 74.9%. No, uh, no, actually, oh. sorry, sorry, that one was, sorry. this was, no, 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 you're good. Um, actually, this year we only saw about 75%. Um, uh, we're white compared to last year's, we're 80, we're no. No, never mind, you were correct, I'm sorry. I'm getting my data mixed up. There's a later point in the actual renter's guide. Um, about the differences, but sorry, my apologies. I'm sorry, I got confused. <laughs> All right, then um, of responses from, sorry, where were we at? Oh, it was the outreach, yep. basically. Uh, um, we're planning to outreach to more BIPOC communities um, in a continued goal of USG. And then uh, the data on income expenditures on housing vary greatly. And this is a messy data set that could be missing some accuracy, but nearly 48% of the 361 respondents with a 30% variation in the normal response rate. And then um, landlords' uh, trust is a perpetual issue that we're seeing, and many respondents claimed uh, they would not recommend their landlord or leasing agency to a friend. And then we had mixed responses on if the respondent would rent from the owner again. Yeah, I mean, the responses from the general data were really, um, I'm gonna go back actually, um, were really crazy to me, uh, especially because there was such high standard deviation, so the percentage from of, so 48% was our average for everyone who responded to that question, so it was 361 people. I think it's really important to note that that's more than half your income really goes to rent on average uh, because there are people that are paying 70%, but there are also people paying about 10% of their income. And so it really generates this like, this, this really good question of where different students are because you know, think of a student that's living in rise uh, of luxury apartments versus one who is on the very outskirts of town in a really small duplex with like six roommates. Um, my girlfriend last year was that way. Uh, I don't know anyone living in rise, but I can imagine that there's probably a really big difference, especially when you go to the same public university here. Um, it's just, I don't know. It's a really good question to ponder for who we represent as the student body. Um, and this also goes down to the same thing of landlord trust. You know, uh, you would expect that the more money you pay, the more you can trust your landlord. That's just kind of like a, a simple common logic thing. 
Um, as you kind of get going through these, some of these graphs, uh, especially in the published data with the, uh, where it's like unrefined, there are a lot of people not really willing to, but then those from the refined data were more willing to. Um, it's a lot of mixed responses in this of where you can kind of see the lines if you parse it all out. Um, but that hits us with the most important question, I believe, tonight. Uh, what is the average rent for, us, for those respondents? So the average rent this year was about $652.08 per month. So um, you can see the breakdown here on the right. Um, you can see, I believe it is, yep, rise at Riverfront Crossing is the most expensive. It far surpasses anyone else. But you can also see uh, Rentals Iowa City, the quarters, Watts Group, all those are on the very far end. So later in the alphabet, you see the higher up you get, weirdly enough. But um, compared to last year's data, which actually there were more responses than last year's data, but this year, or last year's data had um, a $40 difference. So that means uh, on annual, it was about $500-ish in general going up. Uh, this is a lot of money for a student. I, I know that I do not have $500 sitting around just for that uh, each year. That's, that's for sure. Yeah, if you would like to cover maintenance. Yep. So, uh, so for the frequency of emergency maintenance requests, it seems as though there are, are a couple of parties that stand out um, in the visual individual um, quite significantly have a higher frequency of emergencies as you can see in the graphs and then it's important um, to observe which agencies have more uh, emergency maintenance requests and additionally um, prospective tenants advocate to be shown uh, the unit they are interested in renting if possible prior to signing we have a graph up there for that you want to yeah there? I mean oh, that's kind of yeah. on that one so Landlord responsiveness. So obviously, as you live in an apartment or anywhere, you're going to have uh, incidents happen, uh, whether they're just like a broken light bulb or you know your kitchen sink is flooding everywhere. Um, we kind of noticed on this one that their results were they genuine. Some of them did actually have like pretty decent response time to emergency ones, but a lot of them are pretty similar, if not sometimes slower, uh, on average. Uh, it is important to note that the emergency one only goes up to four days responses, whereas the left, uh, the left one only for general emergency, yeah, general emergency, or uh, general responses goes up to five in total. Um, so that is important to note, uh, just the differences, because it can look like the one on the right is higher. Um, but overall, both of them were just on average about the same. So whether Responsiveness wasn't that high of a priority. I would like to have seen more uh, responsiveness, especially during emergency ones. Um, but yeah, I think that's overall. And then, let's see. Yeah, that's it on that. Oh, I can cover this one too, sorry. Uh, this is one that we kind of threw together. Uh, on the actual renter's guide itself, you will see that the, the red bar ones are just the unrefined data. Um, there's a whole bunch of those in there. Um, but one of our big questions this year was recycling um, and stuff like that. It's just another way of being sustainability. It's one of our main goals in USG. We have an entire committee committed to it. Um, we are seeing that there are some places with 100%, like each place, each respondent had a recycling unit, but there are still some in the 40s uh, and kind of in the 60s too, which 
isn't good because renting, I mean, not renting, recycling should just be a standard across Iowa City, and I believe it is as well. There are forms to fill that out, but I don't know if students know too well about that, so we're working on how to kind of tackle this issue. Another big one that I wanted to note now and then look at later in the future when Matthew does this is transportation. So we saw that walking is one of our biggest ways of transportation across campus. I mean, obviously, Iowa City and the University of Iowa are like right next to each other. Um, but we also saw uh, private car usage really high. Um, and Canvas usage, though, was also our third highest ranking one, which is awesome. We love that. But I want to put a pin in that because I want to see Iowa City buses go up to that too. Um, you can see that the Iowa City buses one was our fifth highest response, but we're really hoping that it can get up to the third or fourth. Um, but we'd also love to see bicycling go up as well. Basically our biggest one for student government is to have driving go down. We have a really close campus. A lot of people do live somewhat close to town. We wanna have alternative methods, and so we're here to advocate for that as well. Oh, yeah. You want to, okay. I mean, yeah, you can hit the conclusions. All right, um, then to kind of wrap up everything, um, unaffordable housing is a major issue in Iowa City, um, in the Iowa City area in general, with many respondents reporting financial strain due to high living expenses. And then um, many respondents also noted that problems in their rental property were inadequately addressed. In many cases, this has resulted in partial to no return in their security deposits and um, landlords engaged in predatory financial actions. Um, student renters do not have the same voice as city and university officials. The city and university leaders should vocalize um, shared tenant concerns and work to increase the public barriers um, of renters by clarifying policy and engaging in more discourse about landlords and property requirements. Uh, we would love any questions, um, but to kind of hammer home the points is that uh, at the end of the renter's guide, I put in um, quite a few quotes that were given back from respondents. They were allowed to put in anything they would like. Um, security deposit uh, return, they didn't have, we didn't have good enough data to properly quantify it breakdown per uh, security deposit returns, but there are some really good uh, unrefined data, as well as I believe one graph that is refined. Um, we will obviously send out the published version once it's done. It should be sent out tonight. I'm sending out the comms request, but you guys get the first look at it. Um, overall, the, the quotes I believe in it, if you look through them, there are some of them that are very damning with what students live with. Um, one of the big ones I kept seeing always is that they didn't even know their landlord. They never met him, never even talked to him, maybe got a text or an email, but never saw him. One person lived with bats living right next to their house the entire, not in their house, sorry, in their ceiling the whole time. No response for an entire year. I mean, these, the, the predatory financial actions come through this, students being viewed as this migratory body. Um, it, it can be said about many students. You know, many students come here from who knows where and stay for four years, if not even shorter, and then leave and never think about Iowa City besides a party city that's here. But there are many, many great things about Iowa City, and I think that the living situation can make or break what Iowa City means to them. Um, ultimately, the, uh, the conditions that students live in, students live in uh, outside of the dorms uh, is, is unique per place. Uh, there's no like single bad guy here in this situation. All of these places do not have their high points. Some of these places do have a lot of high points. Um, there are a couple quotes in there that are not only damning. There are some that are like, hey, my rental company does this really well or does that really well. Um, but there are a lot of them that are, that are not so great. Um, 
it's, it's hard for students also to advocate because they are a migratory body. They feel like they don't really have that connection. Um, so that's kind of our role here is to, by presenting this renter's guide, we're hoping to get it out as soon as possible. Many renters sign their leases or re, like either resign or sign leases in October and November, and I'm kind of upset I didn't get it there. I know I had to sign my lease in October with two guys that I'd lived with for two months at most, you know? And luckily I love my roommates, but I know many people don't have that same experience or else live in bigger apartments and need more roommates and more stuff. And ultimately the costs come down on them. Um, not everyone has a really, really well-off family. Um, so it's just really important. I will send out a copy to every single counselor, current and previous, uh, here today. So it's just very important to note. Uh, we would love any questions. Cool. There is anything. Thank you so much for doing yeah. this. This is this is great work. Mm -hmm. um, I do have a couple of quick questions of for course, you. I was going to ask about that. getting the the data, but you're going to send that to us. So yes. That's an yeah. Easy, yeah. Easy answer. You'd mentioned that the average rent was six hundred and fifty-two dollars. Yes. Um, was that including? Was that for like a person with a single apartment average, or you could be six people with sharing? It basically paying for a bedroom. Yeah, basically paying for a bedroom is kind of the way we 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 were able to break it down. We weren't able to. One way that I'm trying to figure out is for next year. I have a couple future questions, and I would love any if anyone has any future questions. Um, like to be put on the renter's guide, I would love those as well. I'm thinking about adding in one about laundry um, because clean clothes are really important. Um, yeah. uh, this is just basically just for bedrooms. You know, this could be $652 could be one dude living in a house of 12 people, but it could also be one person living in a single studio bedroom downtown somewhere. So sure. basically sure. anywhere in between. Um, yeah, and you, you have some longitudinal data from last year previous to this year. Mm -hmm. um, one thing, and I think we talked about this before, yeah. is if you have um, uh, data going back over multiple years, any of these mm -hmm. trend lines, that, that would yeah. be something that when you talk about students not having a voice, um, you can certainly go back to U UISG and mm -hmm. say, this, is, this, this information is really important for members of this council, and this is mm -hmm. actually a great way to have data to back up stuff. Mm -hmm. And the more longitudinal that data is over multiple yeah. years, mm -hmm. I think the more powerful that is for us to come up with, paint, paint, paints a much clearer picture of the situation. So, so thank you for all of this work. Yeah, of course. Um, we're gonna try pushing out our next one, obviously by May, to have that done over the summer like we did this year. Um, no, yeah, we're really hoping to get some actual data like to compare years and years and years here, so. Thank you. Thank you for collecting all this data. I, I love the graphs. I, I love to yeah. see graphs because you really can see the ups and the downs. But one thing I'm noticing, especially on this graph on the average monthly rent, and you'd mentioned that some renters have never seen their landlord. Mm -hmm. But looking at this list of apartments, it, it seems as though a lot of those are, I, I hesitate to call them predatory, but it's it's outside companies that yeah. not even the Iowa City area or even in Iowa that that own these uh, yeah. buildings. So it's no wonder that they're invisible landlords. I don't know if there's any way that you can kind of capture that data in mm. the future. That uh, with how many of those are actual like local? Because huh. uh, we do have some local landlords yeah. uh, that, that are reputable or, or have housing complexes here. But n noticing a lot of these, I think. Uh, um, Quite a few of those are ones that are, are not local. Yeah, and I will say in, I believe I have some of the quotes too, but there was a whole, it was in the mainly unrefined data, but there was um, like the other category, which was usually, so I, I only, ca if you're a rental, co uh, not your, if the rental company is up there, it had five or more responses in total. Oh, okay. So there were a lot that only had like four or three, 
but a lot of them were smaller landlord companies or like my like friend's roommate's dad or something like that. It's something like crazy like that. Um, but there were some like really good ones, Ma mainly small and local ones were actually pretty caring. Um, but I think that going forward, we should probably look into where these companies originate or have bases and stuff like that. I think that's a good point. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, something you mentioned was like the advocacy part, something that we can use our voices and other leaders can use their voices. Thinking about the individual advocacy for students who have issues with their landlords, um, does the guide separate out things that are actually like violations of the law that they should go to student legal services or potentially, you know, that there was an Iowa Legal Aid partnership um, so that they can get like, for example, withholding parts of the security deposit often mm -hmm. not lawful, um, the entering without 24 hours notice when it's not an emergency, not lawful. Are there mm -hmm. mechanisms for that? Um, I do, we have a um, info slide on there about uh, student legal services. That is one of our greatest assets uh, for, I mean, literally the university, I guess, and renting, most, most specifically. Um, I, I should probably look into more of the legality of all uh, of this. I don't know if it's illegal to enter 24 hours before, but if it is, I would like to look into it. Is it? Yeah. Oh, didn't know that. I'm sorry. Unless I'm, it's I'm, specified in the contract. Unless it's specified yeah. in the contract? Okay. So I maybe in the future, just yeah. kind of like a know your rights maybe aspect rights. to yeah. it of like this data, we saw mm -hmm. these, you know, really when you're talking about predatory practices. One of the parts I did look into legally was the, um, uh, how much they were allowed to charge you for your security deposit, and it is legally up to two months of the security deposit, which is a, a crazy one because in the raw data it had, or maybe even in the un, un, uh, the refined data itself, it had, there was a graph of what percentage you got back. Um, that's that'll be in the published report. I forgot to add that to this, but um, it was m most most of them were no more than like forty to fifty percent, I believe which uh, I believe that the, the, the mysterious nature of getting your security deposit back led to many quotes and many quotes that I didn't put in, um, really questioning that and asking a lot on that. Um, but yeah, I'll look into the legality more of that and then I'd love to continue that. Thank you. Thank you for the, the work. This is very impressive. Um, have you thought, of, are you planning to send it to the university administration, perhaps the regents? Uh, I mean, I, this is yeah. this is a really, really important issue um, that all public entities should be aware of, mm -hmm. and uh, I think it is underreported and un not understood. Mm -hmm. And yet, as you were saying, it's it's kind of foundational to the university experience, and it's yeah. it's sort of this hidden it's hidden from view. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Keaton, you know more about the board of regents. Would it would it be possible to send it to them? Like, wh what would you what would you recommend doing as GR director? Yeah, so with that, um, we actually at our first uh, Board of Regents student leadership breakfast that we had, I think during the summer, I think it was, um, we actually talked about some of these things, so like um, well-being, like student accessibility. I'd love to bring that back up. Right now, we're talking about a lot of things going on on that aspect, but I'd love for us to composite the annually reports, um, as mentioned by um, Councilor Harmson, because I think that data is showing the increase over time, especially like post-COVID, how much everything's increased, would be very educational to bring forward to them. I also have some magnets oh. for, <laughs> to give to you. <laughs> I, we still have like a whole bunch in the office too, but I would love to take them back because yeah, I kind of want to get those back out and about. Um, okay. I know I have multiple of them in my apartment. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Well, thanks to both of you for coming to do this presentation. Very informative. So thank yeah. you so much. Of course. Thank you. Yes. Give them the opportunity to do that. All right, we're going to move on to item number four, clarification of agenda items. Mayor, I, I failed to write it down, but I'll be recusing myself on the consent agenda. I, not the con I don't think it's a consent agenda. The um, mobile home park item, just to let you know on that one. So we will separate that one out. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Anything else from the... Formal agenda. Hearing nothing, and that's item 5G. Thank you. Great. Uh, we're going to move on to information packets November 22nd, and this is um, item number five on our agenda. November 30th. And no, and December 7th. So I do have one um, from there. There's probably two. Um, but IP6, that's the memo from our climate action coordinator um, on the whole home electrification housing choice voucher program. This will be for landlords. This is a phenomenal opportunity, I think, um, as you read the, the IP. It talked about some of the benefits of doing this program. Um, I think the greatest benefit is really allowing landlords to understand the importance of climate action and what they can do, and I think these incentives allow for that. In addition, it also uh, will increase um, housing choice voucher um, users to I think it would entice landlords to um, be a participate in that program or enhance their participation. So this is really great. It's going to be um, talking about heat pumps mm -hmm. <laughs> for some of the landlords to learn more about that because I think a lot of people don't understand what the heat pump water heater is or or the heat pump for um, heat is and some electrical uh, water pumps and. Um, so it's going to be a great opportunity. I also want to mention that um, our climate action uh, team is making headway across the nation. Um, so many of you know that the city of Iowa City is involved with the Mayor's Innovation Project um, that happens um, throughout the entire um, year, having different programs. And this January, we were invited to, Jan uh, to uh, Washington, D.C., and um, our wonderful coordinator, uh, Sarah has agreed to go and speak nice. on uh, some of the things that we're doing here. And so this just goes to show that um, we're doing great things where uh, people are looking and there are mayors that are wanting to know more about what Iowa City is doing uh, to electrify and, uh, and to decarbonize uh, within our uh, community. Mm -hmm. Mayor, I did have an item that's kind of with our uh, assigned commissions update, but also just to come to a pending work session topic. Um, as I'm serving on the JEC board and they're talking about the um, 
different ways in which now that they have more staffing up dispatchers and different kinds of response and that sort of thing. So you and I had talked recently about maybe having a conversation relating to the different types of response and what can be dispatched. So I talked with Jeff about this as well. So just wondering if there's uh, enough counselors who might be interested in having an update on different types of crisis response and what's available in the community um, in the next couple of months. We have sufficient, so we'll put it on a future work session. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Yes. Any other items? from information packet December 7th. I will just note that, and I don't know which uh, information packet it is about the Ashton House, that's gonna be great, mm -hmm. uh, what's gonna be happening there. So thanks to the Parks and Rec Commission that um, foresee uh, a great opportunity, um, bringing uh, great, greater programs happening in that house. We're gonna move on to item number six, which is University of Iowa uh, updates, USG students, government. Long time to see. Yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so Matthew will be coming joint later tonight. He has an Asian religions final right now. Um, best of luck to him on that. Um, thank you again for the Renner's Guide presentation. That finally got done and will hopefully come out here not too long. Depends on how long our comms team can get to it. Um, and we are planning on sending it to now the Board of Regents administration, basically anyone and everyone we can. Good. Uh, I'm even thinking about maybe giving a pr this, the same similar uh, presentation to student government if need be, because I would really like them to also pay attention to that more. Um, so Keaton's here, of course, but um, Keaton just recently got back from DC the other day uh, with our vice president and president himself. Uh, and they were talking to multiple elected reps, uh, trying to understand what the uh, Iowa representatives want from this, uh, from the university really, and mental health, um, and all kinds of, the renter's checklist I don't think is gonna be coming back sadly, um, but a whole bunch of advocacy there. Um, in fun news, uh, Iowa football is gonna be going to uh, the Cheez-It Citrus Bowl on Jan 1st. Um, you know, hopefully you're gonna win against Tennessee after uh, the Big Ten Championship that we don't talk about. Um, and the marching band is back. That's true, that's awesome. Love to see the shout out uh, by Metallica as well. That was a whole, yeah, I don't know why, why they don't like our marching band. They're really good, I know multiple of them. Um, if I seem a little uh, scatterbrained or out of it, it is finals week. It is. Uh, we are in full swing. I have a Native American uh, law and policy paper due tonight. Um, multiple finals all the way up till Friday. I'm one of the unlucky few. Um, but uh, that doesn't take away that winter break is still coming up, and so it'll be great. Uh, I'll be heading back to Kansas for a little bit, but that doesn't really inflict you guys. But I will still be uh, checking my emails, uh, doing any student government work. Uh, Matthew and I's main priorities uh, over winter break is still working on the Narcan campaign. We're working really close with Community and Family Resources, uh, Caleb Brooks, um, specifically to hopefully get people to get going. We have a couple of leads with a sports column, Mesa Pizza, and we're gonna be working with Donnelly's here soon because the owner is on the Iowa City downtown district and seemed really receptive to the idea. Um, and then I will also be working on planning town hall. Uh, like last year, we'll probably be having it in old cap. Um, more details to come though, but just giving you all a heads up because we'd love to have you all there. Uh, it was really good last year and I know that a lot of a lot of people that didn't even know the city councilors were like, oh, I really liked so-and-so, and we really had good points there. So 
I'm really, really excited for the, for the future here. Um, just wanted to wish you all happy holidays and uh, see you next year, I guess. So yes. thank you. Thank Good luck you. this week. Yeah. Yes. We're going to move on to item number seven, council updates on assigned boards, commissions, and committees. Yeah, yeah, hearing nothing. We are adjourned on our work session and we'll be back at 6 p.m. for our formal agenda. Mm -hmm.